we're live. Hello. Hello. Welcome. On a, on a very special afternoon of generational change. Yes, I'm it's Peter. Wednesday afternoon. I'm Jen. And this is a it's a very auspicious occasion, I would say, for me personally. Uh, I don't know about you, Jen, but um, you know, it was sort of a coming of age moment for me for our guest this afternoon, who is uh, somebody I hold in extremely high regard. Um, as you know, I did not join the military, but one of the uh, people who had inspired me along the way, and still to this day contemplate that prospect, is uh, General Clark, and he's the first person that I ever voted for for President of the United States. So uh, this is going to be a uh, a, a very enlightening conversation, to say the least. And he has a uh, a very big venture that he's working on in Arkansas that we're very much looking forward to learning more about and discussing. And uh, as I mentioned to you uh, in the green room, um, there is a gentleman who is involved with this venture who apparently is from right down here in Hollywood, Florida. So uh, obviously very excited to learn uh, more about it. Uh, but as you guys know, this is... Um, a very special guest we're very pleased to welcome this afternoon. As you know, he is a, you never say former, but is a uh, general uh, and somebody who ran for president in 2004. And as I mentioned, uh, was very proud to vote for him and wish he would have been on the general election ballot because I guarantee you he would have uh, beat that PO, uh, that uh, AWOL uh, no-show uh, GW Bush. So it is what it is. But without further ado, we are very pleased to welcome for the first time and hopefully not the last time, General Wesley Clark. Welcome to Generational Change. Hey, thanks very much for the welcome and uh, thanks for the voter support. Yeah, it was a great experience to run for president. Wish I could do it again. Probably not going to ever happen, but it was a once in a lifetime, really educational experience to go across the country, meet people, learn the issues. People tell you their stories in a way that, of course, in the military, we never heard that. I taught economics and I was in the Office of Management and Budget for a year as White House fellow, and I thought, you know, I knew something about the country, but I didn't. So I've had a great education through politics, and that's why I'm I'm so happy to be on your program. I know you all are trying to uh, generate change, and you're trying to do it at the grassroots level, okay. and that's the only way it works. I mean, if you just a military analogy, if you will. Sure. So um, the difference in the fighting in Ukraine today that you're seeing is the difference between a democratically inspired army and an army of a, of a dictator. The Ukrainians were trained in the American system. They know that individual soldiers make the difference in war. The Russians think that it's all about artillery and just push the troops out there and they're just cannon fodder. But here's the thing. I think politics is the same thing. I think a country's only as good as its voters, as the people that make up the country. You'll always have some stars, some big names, some big egos who are out there running for office. Nothing against people that run for office. Somebody has to do it. But it's really the people themselves who select, who monitor, who govern the atmosphere. And that's what I've been so worried about is the country's become so divided and in, 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 in partisan and so ugly. People have talked so ugly to each other. So that's what we're trying to work on. So I'm very happy to be with you today. I think a certain reason people have gotten so much worse and so much 
I think, uglier towards each other is because of the social media and the online and all of this stuff. Because I think people feel at liberty to say things online that they wouldn't obviously say to your face. I think people can hide behind screens. And it's so much easier to brew this discord and this division. It's so easy to sort of set that on like a wildfire and just people encamp themselves in their little tribes. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also, of course, the social media engines drive the separation. But, but you know, the other thing I, I was taught in politics is that there's three things you got to do to win a political campaign. This is what I was told by a friend of mine named Chet Edwards, who was a longtime Democratic congressman from the Fort Hood area of Texas. And Chet said, said, you have to define yourself, you have to define your opponent, and you have to respond quickly to any attacks on you. And so um, if you think about that, this is the, the essence of politics is to show difference that distinguishes you. You're trying to win the vote. What makes you different? Why are you worthy of the support? And so this is um, this is part of what contributes to the divisiveness in American politics today. And the fact is that the social media just amplifies it. Yeah. We're speaking with General Wesley Clark. What inspired you to run for president? Because you could have been a modern day Eisenhower, who I do think is one of our probably six or seven best commander in chiefs that we ever had. Uh, but obviously it, it, it really I don't think people really understand the amount of work and, and the amount of trials and tribulations that go into doing something so significant as running for president. But what did inspire you to ultimately make that leap? Because it is very rare uh, for somebody of your stature to go forward and try it. And the ones who have have been pretty successful. Yeah, well, I'll tell you why I did it, because first I, I was concerned that we were being taken into a war that we shouldn't have entered into that wouldn't end well, that we didn't have to fight. And that was the Iraq war. And from the time I wrote my first op-ed, I was a CNN commentator, but I was asked by the Times of London to write it. My wife said, please don't write this. She said, you're gonna get into this. And and and, it, and, and what I, I was against it because it, there was no reason to use military force against Iraq. And as you know, events unfolded, of course that's true. And then we didn't do it well when we did it. We went in with not enough troops, we didn't have a game plan. We didn't understand what we were doing. So it was a it was a blunder, and it's destabilized the whole Middle East. Afghanistan wasn't much better. It looked better at the outset, but we still didn't know what to do once once we had it, and we never committed the resources to it. And really, Afghanistan isn't a country anyway. It's a bunch of tribes inside a geographic boundary. We never could quite get our heads on that. So I was inspired by the trying to prevent a failure for the country on the one hand. But on the other hand, I've been in the White House as a White House fellow. Um, I supported Ronald Reagan twice, maybe uh, because he was patriotic, maybe because I didn't know any better, maybe because I didn't understand the consequences of what sounded like reasonable ideas if they were played out over 30 years. But um, that's what happens in, in, in democracies. People cast votes and then sometimes they don't like the consequences. But I saw a vision for America that we could really take the country forward, that we could take it forward in a way of building respect for each other, of strengthening the country at the cutting edge, which is the individual person. I just don't believe people should go bankrupt because of medical emergencies. 
I believe that when you graduate from high school uh, and whether you're going to college or whatever you're going to do, that can't be your last educational experience. And I think we have to do more to bring the country forward to, to build a, a, a workforce, a working workforce in America that's growing and learning. This is what we did in the United States Army. We created something we called discovery learning through our combat training centers. So they'd run an operation, 500 guys, sometimes a couple of thousand. They'd run the operation, then they'd break down and say, what happened? Why did it happen? And how can we do better? And eventually we broke through this crust of leaders saying, well, I'm a really great leader. I'm sure I didn't make a mistake. must have been your fault. And we got people to confess and be honest and open and candid. And it really built the um, it built a system of the army that endured with a lot of pressure on it through the whole Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns. It's a much different army than it was in the 1960s and 70s. We built that army, and I'm convinced that in America, we can recreate this culture in a way that people respect each other more, that we understand that it's a lifetime experience in America. You don't just sort of go to school and say, well, I don't think this uh, algebra means anything, so I'm not going to study it. And, uh, you know, I just want to be in the band and have a party. Okay, you can have a good time in America, but everybody's got a duty to the country in some respect. You need to provide service to others. And really, this is the whole meaning of life. If you think about where we are in the country right now, if you think about where we are in the world, we're going to have eight, I think we just had eight billion people officially in the world. But if you look at all the wealth of the world today, if you could stop Vladimir Putin from killing people in Ukraine and have Xi Jinping relax a little bit in China and guide it forward, there's enough wealth today in the world and enough technology that every single human being in Africa, South Asia, Latin America, and the United States, North America, could have a home, family, employment, clothing, education, all the things that people aspire to. Now, the question is, then, how do we do that? How do we bring that respect for each other forward? We always say diversity is our greatest strength, but the politics divides us. And Xi Jinping, of course, barely told Biden, he said, democracies don't work. You know, you're, 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 the future belongs to strong leaders. Well, I don't think he's right. But, you know, right now we're in this contest between autocracies and democracies. You're just seeing it play out militarily in Ukraine. But the real action is behind the scenes in Germany, France, Italy, and in the United States and Britain, which is can governments, if every government chipped in just a bit uh, to the Ukrainians, Russia would have no chance. But Russia can, you know, hurt the living standards, raise the cost of living. I mean, <laughs> Vladimir Putin must look at today's economic news and cheer. Said, oh boy, Biden, you know, he thinks he's so tough with these American missiles coming. Well, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to work and make the price of oil double again, and he'll be voted out of office. And so, you know, there's a personal dimension to all this conflict. We have to have the American people uh, understanding where we are, what we have to do to, to move forward in the 21st century. So that's, I, I, I see you all doing that, and, and that's really close to my heart. I think that's, it's all about the people. It's not about the institutions, really. It's about the culture. 
It's about people's willingness to serve and sacrifice and help each other and respect each other. That's that's really what it's about. Let me ask you, what are you I mean, we've talked about it on our show before. I mean, I actually support the idea of required service, whether it's civil service or military service. I think that one of the biggest problems we have in this country is that most people do not appreciate or respect the nature of the collective. And I, I think that if we had something where regularly people, you, you, you graduate and you serve time doing something for your country, I think that starts to build a feeling of collective. Um, and we don't have that. I, I feel like that's something that's very missing here. What do you, what do you think? No, I agree with it. I agree with it. There should be a concept of service. But, you know, it doesn't have to just fall on the burden on young people. It happens if it happens to young people. There's an environmental core, or um, we started a city year in Little Rock, where young people can come in and do a year of service, mostly in the school systems. But it doesn't have to be young people. The whole idea is that you 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 take a humility pill, and you get off your high horse, and you say, "I'm here to help other people." It's not about your bank account, your Harvard degree or your parents' money. It's just about you and how you relate to the world. And um, obviously, if you do it for young people, it's a great start in life and sort of meeting people across. But if you do it for, I think there's a great need in the world for 40-year-old lawyers and accountants. And um, I think, you know, an American service corps that would pull together 20,000 accountants and lawyers for a year to go in places that are not comfortable, that may be difficult, maybe even dangerous, and know that they're doing it to help the people there, not just to promote U.S. policy, but to actually help people. It's amazing what could be done. See, people, yeah. people everywhere are smart. I've been through Africa for years, and I've been so impressed with people in Africa. Just the, just the I mean, everybody's smart. People think that because they don't have our legal structure, or they didn't go to, to to Cambridge. They're not smart. Oh, they're real smart. That's how they survive. They they know their system. But the question is, can we make a better life if we bring them forward into uh, more modern economics and culture and finance? Maybe, maybe. But that's what a service corps of of, of mid career professionals could do. And so I see it at. at Throughout people's and there, there is a senior executive service corps. Some of my relatives have been in this, and and um, they advise businesses around the world. Uh, but 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 that's different than sort of going in and helping governments. Our problem today is the balance between government and society. We started, you know, uh, it's like in the old army saying, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And so we always sort of laugh at ourselves when we say that. So <clears throat> if you're going to teach people to salute, well, probably you're teaching them to salute too much. And it's, it's, just, it's just the nature of institutions. Starting in the 1980s, we decided government was the problem. And this is, was my hero, Ronald Reagan. And we laughed. He said, government's like a baby. You put the nutrients in the top. And he said, well, you know what comes out the bottom. And, and so uh, it was a funny joke, you know, but over 40 years, what it's done is it's put the country really behind. It's contributed to this flyover mentality where all the wealth is on the coasts, where young people leave their homes, 
where older people, middle-aged people can't get jobs. It's just really, and, and where people come to America and say, <laughs> you people, you you have the worst airports in the world. You uh, have, your, your highways are terrible. You don't even have one high-speed rail network, not one. I mean, and then people say that about America and say, what's wrong with you? And so you're not you're not you're not over impressed with Mayo Pete as head of the as Secretary of Transportation. You're not loud by his transportation prowess. Look, this is a multi generational problem, and we have to accept the fact that there are certain things government can do that the private sector can't do. You know, we always say, "Well, don't let government do the choosing." Okay, that's true. But if you look, <laughs> I was at the at President Obama's 2009 jobs conference, and Afterwards, I said, you know, there's a real problem with jobs in this country. I went around to some of the top economists. I said, how do we create jobs? They said, oh, it's just the private sector can do it. That's that's the way it's done. You know, uh, industrial policy doesn't work. Uh, you know, in France, uh, they tried to create a perfume for the government by the government with Bridget Bardot and uh, and nobody bought it. You know, Bridget Bardot was this famous 1960s actress and. But the truth is that industrial policy does work. We have the most innovative pharmaceutical uh, sector in the world, thanks to the National Institutes of Health. We pay. We, the public, pay for this. And, of course, they get the benefits of the research, often without paying anything back. They get they get to keep their patents. Our military technology, it's the best in the world. Look at it in Ukraine with these HIMARS systems. And yet, um, and that's a government program. So you think industrial policy doesn't work? No, industrial policy does work. It's just that in the private sector, and I saw this back in the 70s when I was in the Ford administration in the Office of Management and Budget, people come to the government, they say, you know, I could do this better. Let me do this instead of you doing it. And so over a period of 40 years, we've privatized a lot of functions. We've ended up in some cases paying more, some cases we haven't. And, and we've taken away the idea that the government is supposed to work for the people. And that's the key concept that we have to recapture. And if it's going to work for the people, who are the people and whose voices count? So can I tell you about my program of the Civility Leadership Institute? Yes. Absolutely. So look, first of all, we started this thing in 2018 going out, and I thought I could get like post-partisan politicians that that had been in, in the game, but were no longer so partisan. And I thought, just like we do in the Army, we take the retired generals out and they tell people about the military. But we take these retired politicians out, they'll tell people about, you know, how politics really works. You know, you have to differentiate yourself and you have to have some attacks on the opponent. But but mostly the things that we agree on a lot more than we disagree on. And I wanted people to be able to say that. But COVID interrupted this. So, And I thought that I could create and, and build a, a, a team of hundreds, maybe thousands of young people who would go out in the political process. And when people talk emotions and attack each other, uh, they'd say, uh-uh, you want my vote? You want my money? I want to hear about the issues. I want a rational discussion. And I want to see respect for the system, not just the person, but the system that's given us these blessings of democracy. So I thought, I, but, but, COVID interrupted that. So what we're doing now is we're bringing 30 people. We started last year. 30 people give us one Friday a month virtually. And um, we do communications training. We bring in a diverse group of people 
from different states, different political orientations, different um, uh, gender, different uh, race, different ethnicity, different religions. And we mix them together and teach them how to communicate with each other. And um, in the middle of each Friday, we have a issues panel and we talk about some of the key issues and people get to hear the issue from people who really make it. Uh, we had Scaramucci on, we had Lena Wynn talking about, and, and they also have to look at the communication skills. And, um, and then we, of course, measure the results. And we've been so gratified with this program. The first 30 people that went through it were so, they were so impressed. That they, de- they demanded to come to Little Rock. And just a second, I got to get back to you. I'll call you right back. Um, so uh, they were so impressed with each other that they demanded to come to Little Rock and meet each other. So at the end of July, we're going to have a meeting here and we're bringing in the next cohort. The thing is that you can't change America with 30 people at, at a time, but it's a start. So we proved out a system. So now we want to take that system as wide as possible. And it does require time commitment and people have to want to learn to communicate. But, you know, most Americans, um, they've never had mid-career education. Nobody called them aside and said, okay, now you've been out in the workforce for 10, 15 years. Um, How do you see things? And you take a personality inventory test. It turns out, you know, you see things pretty black and white or you see things. uh, Gee, it's uh, I don't know, but, uh, you know, it's kind of fuzzy to me. And uh, but I'm happy to listen. And you find different personality types and you teach people who they are. You let them discover who they are through personality tests and then help them understand who the others are. And then you let them work communication skills and learn about the issues. And it, it's just it, it's like the blossoming of a flower. It's just a reawakening for people. And suddenly in the middle of their lives, they see they see the world in a different way. It just opens up perspectives. And I think if we can do this for hundreds of Americans, thousands of Americans in a way that um, will we'll change politics in this country, we really will. I know that when you um, when you're in a just in a single job and you're focused on that job, whether it's a nurse's assistant or teacher or whatever, your world gets pretty narrow. You have to focus and you got family responsibilities and other things. So this is, um, you know, a commitment of um, six Fridays over half a year virtually to, um, to broaden your horizons. And I think that's what it really does. And I think the most important horizons really are the way we treat each other and the way we think about each other. That's more important than any book learning, really. If, if you just have respect in a democracy and you listen to other people, you'll get to the right answers. We're speaking with General Wesley Clark. You know, you ha- you brought up some really good points because of where the economy is right now, where the political divides are right now. You know, you mentioned uh, obviously universal health care. That is a huge issue that, you know, we fight for living wage. Obviously, uh, the, the one thing that you did bring up, which I think was very important, is, you know, this whole idea of, uh, you know, when we talk about the military and the importance of serving our country, I think people need to understand that there is a distinct difference between the military and the military industrial complex. There are people within the military uh, machine, if you will, that are strictly in it for profit. 
and they will figure out ways, whether through any of the major corporations, you know who the biggest ones are, Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics. Uh, there's a lot of people that will specifically get into that. And their interests are not about serving the country and making it better. It's about, well, well how do I make myself more financially successful? If you were in charge of the military right now, could you, how much do you think, first of all, the military budget should be reduced, needs to be reduced? And do you think that if that was reduced, people would be more inclined to want to serve their country, not under the pretenses that they feel that, well, anything that's being done for the military is strictly being done for making a buck and the people be damned? Well, I, I sure understand what you're saying. And I'm in sympathy with what you're saying, but I see it a little bit differently. First of all, all businesses have to make a profit. If they don't make a profit, people wouldn't invest in them and they wouldn't have the capital to do what they're doing, the, the financial means. So they have to make a profit. Now, how much they make, okay, that's different. But <clears throat> start with that principle. So the U.S. military itself used to produce its own cannon. And back, you know, 100, 200 years ago, we had our own arsenals. And but then we found out that individual inventors were they, 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 they spent their lives doing this and they were pretty innovative. And so in Springfield, there was an arsenal. And actually, we, we bought stuff from businesses because they could do it better than the military could do it. And that's pretty much been the principle that's moved the country forward. In World War One, there was something called war profiteering, and everybody got really mad because the military needed stuff really bad, and these people in business said, well, it's a great chance to make a profit. I'm going to just, you know, raise the, I'll make 100% on this instead of 20%. Um, today, there's oil profiteering. The oil companies say, no, I can get the oil, but um, I like the price uh, where it is right now, and I'm uh, making a lot of money and happy, making my owners happy, so... Instead of putting more oil on the market to drive the price down and make the Biden administration happy and America happy, no, I think we're going to sell that oil abroad. And so we're going to export the extra oil so we keep the price high. That's what's going on. That's the profit motive. Now, that's the balance between the private sector and the public sector and how you get that balance right. If you talk to the economists, they say, well, you know, you start putting those controls on that oil industry, then they won't invest then you won't have any oil. So you've got to give them enough. This goes back to the culture of the country. It's about whether people feel that it's all about them. I got my little piece of land and I'm going to fence it in and passing all this money on to my children and the hell with the rest of you. There's a lot of people who feel that way, that it's a, it's a fight, that they have nothing they owe to anybody else. It's just about them. I came up the hard way. Nobody helped me. I made, you know, I hear this all the time from people. It's always wrong. Somebody is always helping somebody else. Otherwise, you'd never get there. So um, there's a different culture that we've got to work. As far as the military is concerned, look, these people in the military, they're not making any money. Um, the way it works, though, on the defense side is they do know what's needed they look at the technology. There's a system for looking at the technology. They look at what the opponents, what they think China and Russia are building. And they say, you know, we want to we don't want to put our soldiers and airmen in an unfair fight. So can we match that technology? And the businesses say, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, we can match it. Uh, here's what it's going to cost. And there's a whole defense architecture that tries to squeeze excess profits out of the defense budget. It's called the Defense Contract Audit Agency. You're only allowed to make 10%. Companies find ways to hide those profits and they buy up competitors and they try to get monopoly. Once somebody at Lockheed Martin told me, said, no, we don't do. We never bid on our projects. 90% of our projects are sole source because we are the only ones that can do it. So we control the price of it. Okay. So there's things that, you know, we always work this every single year in the Pentagon to try to work against it. So, you know, I have a lot of friends in the Pentagon still and a lot of friends in the business side. And uh, they're all good people. It's just the mechanics of the system and the way it's set up. Um, the way it's set up and the, the way it was set up in Russia, as we're seeing, was like this. Um, store this. Second. Deborah, I'm sorry. Uh, I have to call you back. I'll be back to you. Shortly. Yep. The way it was set up in, in Russia was, hey, we're going to put all this equipment in storage. And the people in the storage say, you know, this equipment, uh, well, I know that Vladimir Putin's wealth, the wealthiest man in the world. So I think I'll make a little money, too. I like that they got copper in one of these things. I'll sell it. So they take all the parts off and sell them privately. So most of the stuff in storage in Russia has been junk because <clears throat> people cheated because they thought it, you know, didn't belong to anybody. We're, we have better ethics, more integrity in the United States in our system. We still have people cheating. We still have corruption in this system. I know that. But it really does come down to culture. And so I don't think you can um, legitimately take a whack at a single institution. I think we're all responsible for it. You know, I hate to sound like an old person, even though I'm the oldest person on this podcast. But when I was in high school, nobody ever talked about how much money they would make. Yeah. Nobody ever said, so-and-so is a billionaire. I never heard that term. I never even heard the term millionaire. <clears throat> and if you look at the record of our economic achievements and our policies in this country, when I was in high school, we had a, we started with a 90% tax rate on the top earners. Exactly. So if you work for the bank, like my mother did, and you did really well, the bank would help you. Um, they, they might give you a car as compensation. Uh, they might give you a, a country club membership if you were an officer in the bank. And you would represent the bank there and you would collect and do business for the company, for the bank, by meeting people and building relationships. That was the logic. <clears throat> but what we did is we said, oh no, that's like money. So then that gets taxed. So then companies say, well, let's just give them money. And then you reduce the overall income tax rate. And before you know it, you have this in incredibly skewed distribution of income and wealth that we're having to live with in America. So I think wealthy people ought to pay more than they're paying, including me. I mean, it's only fair. I think that um, the estate tax um, should go back in place because we don't want um, to have a society where 10% of the people are funded for life and don't work and simply enjoy themselves. And 90% of the people are struggling to put food on the table. And General, that's what we're headed to. 
General, you bring up a fantastic point. We're not going to agree in terms of the military spending, which is fine. We're not going to agree on everything. But if you look at the trajectory, especially from the years of FDR through JFK and even more so up until Reagan, the top marginal tax rate fluctuated at a high point of 94 percent under Eisenhower and JFK. And it was hovering at about 72 percent when Reagan took office. And over the course of six years, it got down to 28 percent. Now, it's up to about 38, 39 percent today. But in terms of where so much of that wealth gap really exists in society. It is the top marginal tax rate that has been reduced significantly. So the rich, whether it's Bezos, Gates, uh, you know, Musk, the list can go on and on because we've got plenty of, to even think that we've got multi, multi-billionaires today. I think a lot of that stems from the fact that we do not have a fair tax code. Um, many people have come up with suggestions as to how to fix that. Some are extreme in the sense that we should just go to a flat tax. But I think if we were to close the tax loopholes and have the marginal tax rate restored, I really do think that that would mitigate a lot of the problems and significantly reduce the wealth gap. Do you see it that way? Well, I think we do have to look at the at the tax code, but I have to be careful on the loopholes because one of the biggest loopholes is home ownership. And actually, the percentage of home ownership today is lower than it has been. After the Second World War, the U.S. government and, and the people decided that home ownership was one of the most important um, elements and factors in having a good society. Soldiers came back from war. They wanted families. And rather than living in apartments uh, with the automobile, they could own their own home. And so the whole structure of America changed. And then Eisenhower pushed it with the interstate highway system. And um, this deduction for home ownership cost the federal government billions and billions of dollars every year. You know, if you if you own your own home, you can deduct the interest from your income. That's that's the whole point. It encourages these are tax expenditure policies that encourage certain behaviors. And um, home ownership has been tremendously encouraged in this country. And that's one of the biggest loopholes in the tax code. So we have to be careful. You know, people always say, well, you know, you need to depreciate. You need to accelerate depreciation. Um, you can do that. We did that in the 1980s under Reagan. Um, you can accelerate. Uh, you can depreciate R&D expenditures, let's say. You need to do more of that. But these are really arcane, tough economic calls because <clears throat> there's only so much you can take from the economy in terms of government spending. And you've got to give back. And you've got to give it back in a way that shapes the society that meets the needs. And that's the that's the function of the government to figure out how to do that. So um, I've, I've been very impressed with the skills of the people, the staffers on the Hill, for example, who know these budgets. If you say, oh, you should change this or put this R&D tax credit in, they'll go back and show you 40 years worth of research on the R&D tax credit and what it did do and didn't do. You say, well, you need to. Do something more for health insurance. Said, yeah, but here's what happens when you try that. For, for me, I, I, I've never believed that health insurance was the right way to go. I always believe that health services are the right way to go. That is to say, you need a single payer system and you need to move the system, the American people toward a single payer system. 
doesn't mean you're going to get rid of the health insurance industry. If you want private health insurance, go get it. But the trouble with private health insurance is it's sort of contrary to nature. You know, if you buy life insurance, you want to live. Of course, if you die, you want your uh, family to have the money, but you want to live. And the insurance company wants you to live because they don't want to pay off the lump sum or the, the annuities. So you have the same interest. But in the health business, you don't. Now, the health insurance company wants you to buy insurance and stay very healthy. But if you get very sick or you have recurring problems, the health insurance company would like to say, oh, I'm sorry, uh, you know, it doesn't fit our profit margins and, uh, you know, we can't insure you. So uh, Obamacare was supposed to help some of that. But uh, the co-payments and other loopholes in Obamacare and the fact that several states fought against it on partisan grounds in Texarkana, Texas, which is a but Texarkana, Arkansas, in Texarkana, Texas, you don't get good medical care in Texarkana, Arkansas. You did because our governor figured out a way to bring Obamacare into the Medicaid system and make it uh, more um, helpful to people. And in Texas, for partisan reasons, they decided not to do that. So there's a, you know, these are all important public policy questions. But one of the things that I learned running for office is that, you know, your priorities, your show your values. So for me, the priority should be start with the culture. What kind of people are we? How do we treat each other? Do we respect each other as individuals? Do we respect our young people? Do we provide them with the nourishment, the education they need? Do we take care of the old and infirm, the disabled? So it starts with that. And then you have to build the security around it. And that requires law enforcement. It requires borders. It requires uh, the military. And you have to have a, an environment that's conducive to proper business. Now, you have to balance these things off. And uh, look, it's it's a joke, an old British golf joke I learned when I was at NATO. The joke goes like this. Most people play a fair game of golf if you watch them closely. <laughs> and this is the way it is in the economy. No matter how virtuous the person, if you give business the choice of having a 40% return or a 20% return, they're going to say a 40% return. And they're going to give you all the valid reasons why that's better. So if you don't have a government to regulate markets, to enforce the rules of the road, to look at the downstream years ahead implications of policies, then you'll have a country that's gone haywire. And in fact, if you go back and look at what happened in 2008, the Securities and Exchange Commission completely failed in its responsibilities yes. to, to look at mortgage-backed securities and the risks involved. If you look at what happened after that, we've had this long debate between Paul Samuelson, one of my favorite economists that I studied at school and most people have, and, and I taught it when I taught economics, and Milton Friedman, whose theories really, <laughs> they didn't hold water. They were good ex post 
but they weren't good policies and they were disproved. And yet the political idea of get government out of the way, government can't make decisions. Those have a lot of appeal to people. Yeah. Um, and then I can understand that. So we got to get the balance right in the country. I think the balance is a little bit off right now. And one, one key point before we close, obviously, with Renew America together. Um, you know, we obviously have talked at length about the military industrial complex and the impact that it has. But the one topic that I think is key in terms of bringing everybody together is obviously the environmental impact that the MIC does have. Uh, no one has a bigger carbon footprint. And so if the Pentagon could more or less amplify this movement towards a clean energy economy and the commander in chief, you know, President Biden does have the authority to declare a climate emergency and start building out a clean energy grid. This is the whole thing about service to the country. I would imagine most people would want to be a part of that. Uh, there's a lot of technology that is available today, as you know, the constant need for uh, innovation. How do you see it going forward? Because there's a new form of nuclear, nuclear uh, uh, generation four is, I believe, the technical term for it. Uh, obviously, uh, improving uh, the uh, longevity of solar panels, wind farms, geothermal, uh, hydro. There's a lot of different directions that we could go in. But how impactful do you think it would be if that were to become one of the central focuses? Because, again, as you alluded to, you know, we don't want to have to be dependent on Russia or China or anybody for our means for getting energy, but we also don't want to have fracking wells in people's backyards here in the United States. So where is that happy medium, General? Where do you see that coming? Well, first of all, the, the Pentagon has been one of the real leaders in renewable energy. We've recognized first the, the, the threat of climate change. We were the first major institution to recognize it in the United States. And um, we've also been pushing for the last 20 years to put more green energy and uh, and 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 microgrids on military installations. So um, we've got solar panels, we've got uh, geothermal, we've got uh, waste to energy projects all over. And there's a central coordinator in the Pentagon. So we're actually doing pretty well on this in comparison to everybody else. Um, but I do want to say this about the military industrial complex. It's always been a favorite whipping boy and Eisenhower warned us about it when he created it, you know, in that famous farewell speech. But the truth about it is that most of the things we enjoy in America today started in the military industrial complex. Your, all your communications technology here, it all came from government funded research. Um, the internet, I was in the beginning of that, we used to call it ARPANET, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, and we did it. And, and I remember seeing it the first time in 1988 and these guys typing on these on these portable computers and, and, and putting an address in that's got like 18 digits in it. And I'm like, why are you doing that? I mean, why don't you just, but you know, all of that, then that was the way it began. The military saw the need and sponsored it. So, um, we have to understand there's a tremendous payoff from military investments. It's not just money going down the drain. Now, I can't defend what was done in Iraq or Afghanistan. A lot of wasted money there. Wish we hadn't done it. Feel really bad for the people that served. A lot of my friends were in those operations and a lot of lives were lost. Not only ours, but, but Iraqi and others. Those are mistakes. But it wasn't the military that made those mistakes. 
Those are the political leaders we elected. Yep. Never forget that when we went into the Iraq war, 80% of the American people just wanted to get after Saddam Hussein and just kick his ass. And sorry for the vulgarity, but I mean, that's the way it was expressed. And uh, there was a lot of bar talk, you know. And when we saw the reality, that's why I ran, because I knew what the reality would be. The American people don't want to occupy other people's countries. And the American army's not any good at it and won't be any good at it. We are a defensive army. When we go on expeditionary operations, that's not us. We're in place to serve, protect the American people. And um, so I salute those people in, in uniform and the ones who volunteered in civil service to work for the government. We've got to protect them. Um, but we've got to build a culture in America that's more inclusive. That's How do people get involved? Case. How can people get involved and support this um, project that you're working on? Yeah, it's renewamericatogether.org. So come to our website um, and, and we'll put it up here on your podcast. And look, we'd love to have you involved with us. We'd love to have you help us outreach. It's not so much about policies. I think uh, for us, it's the generational change that you're talking about is treating each other better. It's respecting the diversity of opinion. Everybody's opinions in life are shaped by their experiences. You just can't get away from it. And so people bring different ideas in. It's what they've seen in their lives. You know, I talk to people who say, I swear, we gave too much aid for COVID and now these people won't take jobs. These are people I respect and that's their experience. And talk, I, I look at other people and said, thank God I got that COVID relief. This is the first time I've been out of debt in 10 years and so forth. Okay, that's, it's a big country. And um, it's stronger for having the diversity. We just have to respect each other. We would love to have you work with us and, and your following. Come to us, participate in, and help us scale this program. Because I think the key to success in America is to take a young generation, make it generational change, middle generation, and my generation. And let's go... Let's, let's work together better. Let's communicate better. You know, the genius of democracy is that, at least as Alexis de Tocqueville explained it in the 1830s when he visited America, is there's a lot of different people here with a lot of different ideas, but somehow when they vote, the common sense of the people gives the right policies. Well, that's the whole idea. And we've got to move to the middle in terms of respect for each other and then listen to differing perspectives and make the best judgments. President Joe Biden, when he was a vice president, just inaugurated, made this speech. And um, I, at Union Station, it, it stayed with me uh, all these years. And he said, when he was a young senator, he'd heard a Republican senator who was really mean and nasty. And he went to the Senate Majority Leader, Mike Mansfield from Montana, and said, that man, he shouldn't even be in the United States Senate. Listen to how he talks. And, um, and, and Senator Mansfield said to him, well, you don't, would you believe he just adopted a, a Korean orphan? He said, no, I wouldn't believe he not after he talks like that. So he said, you have to understand the purpose of the U.S. government is to bring the people that are selected by their, the, 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 by, the, by the voters together 
and help them do the best they can for the country. To me, that's the essence of what democracy is about. We can't all be experts on everything. We have to elect people we trust. They have to have integrity and they have to be able to work across the aisle and they have to listen to us and we have to listen to them. And it's about respect and culture. So that's my thoughts for the day. And um, I really appreciate the chance to be on with you. And we'd love to stay in touch and, and work with you because I think we share the same goals. General, uh, it, it is uh, it, it is a privilege and a pleasure. Um, and again, uh, what I loved about this conversation, Jen, your thoughts as well, um, we agreed on a lot and we disagreed on a number of things. And at the end of the day, I think we still had a very productive conversation. And in the the atmosphere that we're living in today, this fear of having disagreement and thinking that you can't get past that, that has got to end. And I, and I hope that people who will see this conversation agree that even if we do not agree on everything, we can find common ground. And that is essential in this moment in time right now. So guys, please go to renewamericatogether.org. At least check out the general's message. If you disagree with it, that's fine. And if you agree with it, Figure out a way to get involved, and we certainly hope that we can have another conversation with you in the near future. And I personally salute you, sir. Thank you for everything. Thank you. And thanks for your support 20 years ago. I'm grateful. You gave me a chance to have a voice, and I'm trying to use it because I don't have that much longer. I'm in the – I have to face it. I've only got a few more seasons of golf. Right. <laughs> And, um, and, and so, you know, you want to give back what you can. And um, so I think the most important thing we can do is help this country heal itself. Amen to that. Treating each other the right way. Thank you very much. Thank General you. Clark, thank you. Clark. Look forward to speaking with you again soon, sir. Have a thank wonderful you. day. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye. So for you those. Have a nice fanboy moment. Well, again, uh, he was uh, very inspiring to me at a young age. Like I said, I almost joined the military when I was 18. And then, of course, when GW moron comes along, um, it was so easy to support General Clark in 2003. It really was. And what was so amazing is that he comes along on the national scene right as they're invading Iraq. And it's like. It couldn't have been more fortuitous. And for somebody like him to basically say, yeah, you know, this is not good. And you can tell how much he loves the military and how much he still believes in the sanctity of what it once meant. You can tell how much Eisenhower, Kennedy and Reagan meant to him. And I understand that. And there's a lot of people in the chat who don't. This gentleman is pushing 80 years old, guys. You know, it's. He is from a completely different world than you all inhabit. And I have no doubt that the majority of people in the chat are probably our age or younger. So to say that there is a disconnect in terms of the vision would be one thing. But, Jen, universal health care, restoring the top marginal tax rate. I would say those two issues right there are pretty damn significant that I would think most people would agree on. Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing everybody in the chat and I and I get it. I mean, I'm pretty anti-military. I <clears throat> don't agree with even having the level of military that we have. I haven't in forever. And so it's hard for us to reconcile 
people that serve in the military and that military mind and budget. And they are different. And, and he did make a good point because the problem isn't the military. The problem is policy. The yeah. problem is that is that we pri- what we prioritize as a nation. The people in the military are simply serving that machine. But, uh, you know, I don't agree with a lot of that, but that doesn't mean that. And I, somebody saying, don't get sucked into that trap. There's no trap. I am very fully aware of who people are, but if there is a way to bring different people together in conversation, that's the only way we're ever going to get anywhere. The mentality of ignoring those people and not getting sucked into that trap, that's the same as the people, the toxic left that don't want to engage with somebody who's not 100%. Like, Correct. We're not going to get anywhere with this. And let's be and let's be honest. Uh, General Clark, for all intents and purposes, is a moderate Republican, and that's fine. I, if that is his philosophy, he but, supports single payer health care. Yeah, and you know what? Um, the thing that was interesting that you know we discussed with John Nichols of the Nation the other night is that Mr. LaFollette, who was the uh, candidate on the Socialist Party ticket in 1924 that actually won the state of Wisconsin, he was a former Republican. So this idea that there isn't this fiscal conservative branch of the GOP, it's still there. It's just, you know, again, this is like the argument that we have constantly about where is the Democratic Party today? The Democratic Party today is not the Democratic Party of labor anymore. That doesn't mean that there aren't millions of labor and labor minded people that are still in the Democratic Party. They just don't pull the levers of power. If you look at who's pulling the levers of power in the two major parties right now, it is anything but what is supposed to be representative of the two parties. Yes, the GOP is the party of management and fiscal responsibility. The Democratic Party is supposed to be the counterbalance party of workers and labor. That is not where we are today. We have two neoliberal parties that are completely captured by corporate special interests, including the military industrial complex, which is where we disagreed with the general. He admitted that he still has. And when he says he has a few friends at the Pentagon, what he really probably means is he has hundreds of friends at the Pentagon. And when you have that, There is this sort of, I won't name the politician, but when I was at the event the other day, I spoke with a politician who alluded to the fact that they can't support Sam's candidate because they're friends with the incumbent. And it's like the personal relationships have a huge component in how people look at these things. It's like, you know, I have no tolerance for that nonsense. I have no tolerance for that nonsense. I agree 100%. Well, because that's why we get into the same problem here regarding Debbie and people who are like, Jen, I think you're wonderful, but you know, I've known Debbie for 30 years. It's it's, it's difficult. No, it's not. It's not. (laughs) Well, because people make it personal, but this is also something that we have found to be heavily democratic on their side is they care about feelings. They care about their feelings. They do. They don't care about reason. They don't care about facts. They care about feelings. And they don't care about corruption. They care about how somebody makes them feel. And this is why I believe they lose. I think that is a huge part of it. And and one of the things that, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we we look at when we talk about the evolution of, you know, in terms of obviously the way things are uh, between the two national parties is that uh, 
It's going to be very interesting because, again, there's a huge section of the Democratic Party that will not let go of Clinton. And they really uh, do not let go of Obama, whereas the GOP, they've they cast George W. Bush aside a long time ago. It'll be interesting to see how quickly the party cast Trump aside if they gravitate, if they grab on to, let's say, DeSantis, for example. So it's going to be a, a very interesting trajectory. But. The next gentleman who we are bringing on is somebody who you may know because he's uh, he's good with the humor, which is something we do not typically have in politics these days. Um, but recognizing him as the Grim Reaper on the sandy beaches of northeast Florida, particularly at the height of covid, uh, knowing that there was so much reckless behavior in this state. And um, it was so interesting to see the difference, um, as I'm sure we will discuss with Mr. Olfelder, uh, between the behavior in St. John's County and Duval County, which is what borders uh, the Jacksonville metro area in the northeast corner of our state. But the real reason we have this gentleman coming on today, not as we obviously like to interview and bring light to as many local candidates, statewide candidates as we can, is obviously with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the importance, the vital importance of the role that the attorney general plays regarding prosecutorial cases regarding abortion, which is even insane to think that that would be possible, now becomes a very significant talking point as we start to enter the political season, especially with the primaries only six weeks away. So without further ado, he is the he is one of the candidates for Florida's attorney general. Daniel Olfelder, welcome to Generational Change. Hi, how are you? Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you all. Absolutely. Two attorneys introduce yourselves to each other. I don't don't tell people I'm an attorney. That ruins everything. <laughs> Nobody likes attorneys. Nobody <laughs> likes attorneys. They used to, and that's what's so sad. They, I mean, my dad's an attorney, and I, I grew up around the law, and it wasn't as uh, it used to be. You know, respect. It used to be people didn't think so poorly of attorneys. It's really sad. So yes, but as you know, because you've been swimming in these waters, you've met the people that are the cause for those feelings. You've met them, you know them, they're colleagues, and there's lots of them. So yeah. it, yeah. it, yes. And so obviously let's start with what made you decide to get into this race? Because obviously the race has changed significantly in the last few weeks. But what was the initial interest in saying, you know what, um, I've got I've got, you know, you have your practice, you do the things that you do. But you're like, I, I have to I have to take a chance here. I have to do something for my citizenry of Florida that you felt that it was necessary to get involved in such a big race. Well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, for years, we've watched. Uh, the Republican Party here in Florida. It's been, I guess, decades now, really destroyed in, in so many ways, whether it's education, whether it's uh, basic fundamental rights, whether it's voting rights, whether it's basic community, basic, you know, res- respecting people's differences that I, and I've been fighting that. I've been fighting that fight, whether it's against Governor DeSantis, whether Mike Huckabee, Matt Gates, Donald Trump, you know, Rick Scott. I mean, the list has gone on and down. And so I've been very, involved with my activism, trying to protect our public beaches, you know, trying to take down a Confederate flag here for 20 years at our courthouse, trying to raise awareness about the COVID dangers by traveling the state as a Grim Reaper. And I kind of, I guess I hit my ceiling on activism. I mean, and I felt like the best way for me to affect change was to change the people in office. So replace the attorney general, Ashley Moody, 
who has been a disaster for this position. She, on a number of fronts, she, in December of 2020, she signed on to a brief to overturn a valid election. Her own staff attorneys called the legal theory bat shit insane. And after that, when I discovered that, she stood in the way of the marijuana initiative even being on the ballot. She stood in the way of the Affordable Care Act. Then she started suing cruise lines for requiring vaccines. Then she started going to school boards for trying to have precautions. So basically she is Ron DeSantis' personal attorney and we need somebody who is the attorney general for all of Florida, whether it's Democrats, Republicans, independents. And I am uniquely qualified to fill that position. I think that that's often the case that people see the attorney general as the as the executive leaders like sort of, you know, watchdog. Um, but in this case, it's definitely more like a lapdog. And I think that that's yeah. that's a problem. I mean, we're seeing what we anticipate to be a pretty red wave this year, and definitely Florida is not going to be an exception to that. I mean, how do you? Uh, hey, 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 that? I, I don't like to interrupt, too, but I hear that all. I hear that way too much, and I'm wearing full blue today. I got a. I usually wear a white shirt. I got a blue. I'm all blue. <laughs> Florida is a purple state. For anyone that's listening, look at history. In 2018. Ron DeSantis won by 32,000 votes, 0.04%. Nikki Freed won statewide waste. Rick Scott beat Bill Nelson by 10,000 votes out of 8 million cast. And Rick Scott had a blank check of $200 million. So anytime someone tells me there's a red, Florida is not a red state. The problem is it's run by leaders who are in one party. Because the Democrats, if you look at the registration numbers, they're pretty close to identical. And then you've got independents. And if you look at the the votes in these uh, initiatives, whether it's $15 minimum wage, marijuana legalization, health care, they've overwhelmingly restoring votes for voting rights for felons. They overwhelmingly support that. Those, and those are Democratic principles. So the problem is the message. We aren't getting our message out. And that's why we are losing these races. And I'm not going to let this happen this time, not in my race. That's a very good point because, you know, we have seen the circumstance. I'm sorry. To, I mean, I know you. I'm no, not, not at all. Not at all. No, it's no, no, it's good. I just, I, I hear that. So, you know, when I call people all the country, they say Florida's, Florida is not red. It's not. It's, it's just controlled by red. It's exactly. controlled by people that are red. And, and as a result, Right. That's often what we see. And I'm just thinking when I look at our gubernatorial race, right, like to me, that's not really a competitive race. It's just not a competitive race. And so you're going to see, I believe the leader of our state executive is going to be Ron DeSantis again. And so you tend to see people who vote sort of vote ticket, vote party down the ticket. And that's the that's the problem where I see this wave. If, if we had a really competitive gubernatorial candidate, I might feel differently about that. And I well, think I, that think, I think I just I think it's going to be Florida is historically close. I mean, Rick Scott barely beat. I mean, everyone talks about how much money Ron DeSantis has. He doesn't have as much money as Rick Scott won. And he barely won it. I think the I have not given up. I think the Democratic governor's race is going to be close. Uh, I think either the candidates clearly are way past DeSantis. But let's say DeSantis does win. We need me even more. I mean, we need somebody as a firewall to stop his craziness even more than we would otherwise. Oh, I, I agree. Think, I agree 100%. Yeah. yeah. Right. 
Yeah. And I think that that counterbalance is always key because, and again, uh, what is working in your favor is the fact that even in 2018, Nikki Freed was able to buck the trend. Now that doesn't often happen where, you know, top down, it becomes, you know, a one party ticket, but then somebody gets in there and kind of, you know, it, 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 it's like a fly in the ointment type situation. So if Nikki Freed can become the commissioner of agriculture, who's to say that Daniel Olfelder can't become the attorney general? And I agree with you that when it comes to Ashley Moody, uh, she is as hyperpartisan as hyperpartisan gets um, in, in, a, in a very unethical way yeah. uh, regarding the things that she did uh, on Trump's behalf when he was president. Uh, and it was nonstop. It wasn't like it was one circumstance where, all right, I'm going to do this favor for the president. No, it's like, Mr. President, what do you need and how much of it do you want? And it, and that, to me, is a very, very big problem, especially skirting all the laws. Um, this is kind of like the wild, wild west here in Florida. And I think that that's what I think scares a lot of people. And it puts us in a very unique situation leading into this election where I would agree that even if the top of the ticket looks one way, a race like yours can become very interesting because Ashley Moody really does have a lot of dirt under her fingernails. Most politicians do, but she really takes it yeah. to another level. Yeah, and we need a candidate like me who can can hit her on it, who's not afraid to attack her on it and have credibility on it. So, yeah, and, but there's other historical president down ballot, like Alex Singh. She's a CFO. She won down ballot you know, as, a, as, a, as a banker, as as a CFO. And um, yeah, so, I mean, clearly, I think we got a great Val Deming to the top of the ticket. She's out raising Marco Rubio. I think either Nick or Charlie is going to run a really great race, and then you're going to have me. It's going to be a strong Democratic ticket because you're going to have a Nick uh, Val Demings who's a Orlando cop, you know, rides a Harley. She's tough as nails. She's got so much charisma. You're going to have either Nikki or Charlie, who I think are stellar. I think they're great retail politicians, and they can go. They can get cross appeal from maybe Republicans, independents, and then me as a North Florida Democrat who is unique in a number of respects in terms of taking risks. You know, talking about pocketbook issues. It's going to be a tough ticket for them to the, to beat, in my opinion. Obviously, uh, the world has changed significantly. Uh, we were heading towards this path for quite a while, but Florida now becomes the eye of the hurricane in many ways because a lot of people, uh, rightfully so, believe that uh, Governor DeSantis is going to run for president regardless of what happens in November. And now the wrinkle of Roe v. Wade being overturned really puts a central focus on this particular race uh, knowing what direction he may head in, where does Attorney General Moody currently stand on any type of prosecutorial efforts against abortion cases? Now, obviously, we have the 15-week abortion ban. We don't have a full abortion ban, but that could obviously change at any time. Uh, how does that factor into your race as it stands right now? Well, as soon as I learn the, the Dobbs decision leaking, within minutes, I released a statement saying I would not prosecute a doctor or a woman involved in performing abortion. I did not hesitate. I'm not going to, I mean, that's a private decision that is not something that should be prosecuted. And I will stand in a firewall as a train for any effort to make criminal prosecution in that case. What is Ashley Moody doing? I think you really, she'd have to ask Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. At this point, I don't know who is her boss. I think because there's going to be a conflict between the two at some point. But uh, interesting on the abortion issue. 
when is the last time you heard were, were you heard or did not hear Ron DeSantis say something about an important issue? He's being like a quiet as a mouse. Oh, yeah. Because he's in a box the size of the state of Florida. Yep. And he does. And you know what the problem is? He has no courage. And when I went out, I called two years ago. I said, this guy's running for president. I traveled the state as a grim reaper calling him out for his deathly handling of this. He's a coward. He's a complete coward. And he won't make he won't come out because he got people on the right saying you got to go for a full ban or you're you're out. You got people on moderate. Well, you can't say anything. Wait to the election. We are done with cowards in Florida leadership. Ron DeSantis is a coward. Ashley Moody is a coward. And I'm going to fight them tooth and nail on every issue because clearly he 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 doesn't know what he's going to do. He, he He's going to do whatever he thinks. He doesn't care about women or doctors or how to handle. He cares about his political future and his so, decision on what to do about this is only based on his political future. I did oh, a segment. Yeah. Yeah. I did a segment on this uh, like two weeks ago and I right when it happened. And I said, oh, he now really becomes the central focus, because if this was just a question of him getting reelected to Florida, I think he'd go, you know, he'd go for the whole, whole thing. thing. Try to take yeah. a board. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he would go but, for a full ban if he wasn't running, thinking of running for president. Definitely. Exactly. Because that will not play in the majority of the country. Well, I'm Florida, not sure exactly because I, I think I, I think he's still I think he's got a close. I, I think. I don't know about that. I mean, I think I've gone back and forth on that, whether if he really wasn't considered running for president. I think I think he's ultimately a coward and he hasn't figured out how it would play in his reelection and his yeah. presidential race. So I think it, I think it, I think even if he wasn't considered running for president, he would skirt this and hide from it and duck it as long as he could. It is very awkward and uncomfortable. And I, for one, appreciate him not commenting on it because I am quite frankly, tired of a whole bunch of people talking about my reproductive rights. Like I am so sick of white men, I'm sorry, talking about my uterus and saying things like, well, I guess 15 weeks is okay. No, it's gotta be the heartbeat. Get the F out of here with that. I am so done. This is not even a negotiable thing to me anymore. I am so done discussing this with people. It's outrageous. This is outrageous. Uh, no, I agree. Yeah, I, 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 I complete in 1978, there's a little history. I'm a history major. So the Florida, we had a constitutional revision commission meets every 20 years in Florida. Since 1978, Sandy Dallenberg, who's a legal legend and one of my mentors, was the head of the constitutional revision commission. My dad was the executive director. They, it was their idea to put in 1980 in the constitution of Florida, the right to privacy. And it's been in our constitution since then. And there's, there are many states that have that. And it's been upheld by the Florida Supreme Court repeatedly as applying to rights to an abortion. So Florida has led the country for decades in protecting women's rights because it's, it's a privacy right. And I agree with you. This is, a pro this is a matter between a doctor and a woman and a girl. I mean, nobody else. Nobody else. And I agree with you 100% on that. I don't know if you were watching um, what they were taught when they were the, the committee hearings about this and they were questioning, I think her name is Kira, Kiara Bridges. She's the... Um, the, the attorney, out, I want to say she's out of California, but she's a reproductive rights attorney and they're questioning her. And she uses the term anyone able to carry a child because, of course, and they're sitting there trying to nitpick with her fighting about the definition of a woman. Oh, thing. Right. Yeah, I saw, as, yeah, if, yeah. as if that's what we need to be discussing yeah. now. Like and she's like, well, yes, trans men could technically 
caring children. Um, and that's what they want to be talking about. That's what the, that's the issue that they're taking from all of this. Well, the, the, I, I don't know if I'm I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about how these folks think the Republican Party knows if they talk about pocketbook issues, corporate, you know, overseeing of people of taxes, of minimum wage, they're going to lose. So they create these boogeymen, these issues of, you know, grooming, you know, Right. These, these issues like, you know, killing a baby because they have to, to rile up their base because they don't have the votes unless they rile up their base. And these industries like Koch Brothers, they raise all their money on this. Donald Trump, he, you, you think he's really gives a crap about abortion rights? No, no but he knew way, in order to win, he had to go to the Koch Brothers and the Federal Society and say, who do you want? I'll pick whoever you want. And that's what I do because it's how they win or they, they have been winning, uh, even though the, the majority of people disagree with them on these issues, they pick these social cultural issues that divide Americans to get their base out to vote. That, that that's It's that simple. It it's works. Not, it, it's, Ron DeSantis is no different than Bull Connor from governor of Alabama when, during segregation. I mean, the dog whistles are different, but the same message. What did Donald Trump say when he came down, the, when he first announced he was running for president? We're going to build a wall. We're going to, the Mexicans are rapists and murderers. Ashley Moody goes to the border of Mexico, says we're going to keep, it's all about race and class and bigotry. That's it. And once you figure that out, and once you can tell people, hey, these people you, that you're listening to, how are they helping you with your homeowner's insurance or your property taxes or your utilities or your rent? They don't give a darn about it. And once you, that's what we have to hone our message on. We have to hone on pocketbook issues and how the Democrats actually help you in those issues. What are the top issues that you will be fighting for should you become the next attorney general of Florida? Several. First of all, we have a utility, Florida Power and Light and other utility companies in Florida run this state. They, yes. they don't just run your utilities. They run your elections. They run your decisions. I mean, mm -hmm. they have shadow candidates they fund all over the state. I'm going to go after them because they are a monopoly and they not just have a monopoly on your utility prices, which where I'm in Northwest Florida, Florida Power and Light bought Gulf Power for, and, and, and they've gone up, jacked the price up and they're telling people, well, the prices are up because you were paying too low last with your previous provider. I'm going to go after uh, homeowners insurance companies that are bilking people. I'm going to go after the, all the, these industries that are hurting Floridians at the expense for the benefit of corporations like that. And look at them, because if you look at my opponent, Ashley Moody, she just got 20, she got 25 grand, 50 grand for Florida Power and Light tobacco. She just got 50 grand five days ago from the Seminole tribe. What is that for? What is what is the yeah. Seminole? Well, I don't. What, what is the Seminole tribe? A gambling issue? When I have nothing against the Seminole, I mean, what are they getting for that fifty grand? This is an attorney general that is supposed to regulate these industries. So I'm going to be an independent. I'm going to reproductive rights. I'm going to be a firewall to any attempt to, to to hurt those. A firewall that will be voting rights, civil rights. The attorney general has so much power in Florida and it's not being used for good. It's being used to help corporations and donors of the Republicans. 
Amen to that. Daniel, how can people get involved with your campaign if they want to support your efforts, uh, whether it be through phone banking, text banking, canvassing, all of that wonderful stuff that comes with obviously running a statewide campaign that is an immense amount of effort. If there is a website that people can check you out at, what can people learn about getting involved with your campaign? Thank you for doing that. I always forget that. I should, yes, this is a, it's a big state. That's our job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that just shows you I'm still learning how to run for office because I don't. I, the last time I ran for office, I was a it was Leon High School student body vice president. So, <laughs> so go to DanielForAG.com. That's our website. Uh, you can learn all about what I represent, what we're going to do. Um, you can there's a link to donate there. We have a primary on August 23rd that I've got to get got to win the primary before I send Ashley Moody packing to Fox News. So go to danielforag.com uh, and you can learn more about me. Well, you know, Newsmax and uh, One News Network pays well, too. So you can't forget about that. Got to give oh, them. I forgot about Newsmax. The CEO yeah. of Newsmax gave a big, big check to Ashley Moody two months ago, too. No surprise there. No surprise there. <laughs> Guys, go to danielforag.com. You'll definitely be very informed. Um, an attorney who takes his job seriously, uh, foreign concept. Hey, I've taken my job seriously. I didn't say you weren't like a, you know, a rare. I used to be an attorney. Here. I used to be a good attorney. Yeah, I'm sure you well, still are. I'm sure you still are. You it's just you get rusty. You get, you know, it's like I. It is, it, yeah, it is. It's like it's, that's why they say practice. You're always practicing. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Well, well thank you for having me. Daniel, it's a real pleasure. And thank, thank you for you, what you're doing. You know, again, in, in cases like yours, I think it's very, very important to especially be very appreciative of your efforts because you are not a career politician. You are not somebody who is just running the gamut of trying to get elected every election cycle. You saw an opportunity where things are getting really bad and you said, you know what the hell with it? Um, you know, I got to step up. I got to do something. So you definitely have our respect um, at the very least. Uh, you know, we certainly hope to see you out there on the trail sometime soon. We're down here in Broward County. So uh, I'm sure at some point- If you're in the neighborhood, look us yeah. up. I'll be in West Palm Beach on Monday, so uh, close, not far. That's so. Peter's neck of the woods. Yeah, well, used to be. I used to live in Delray Beach. Miss it terribly, but we're down here in central South Broward area. But like I said, I'm sure, as especially as things heat up at the end of this month and especially in August and then obviously through the fall, things are going to ratchet up, and I'm sure we'll be seeing each other. And, guys, like I said, DanielForAG.com. Check it out. Thank you so much for coming on the show All today. Right. Baby. I'll have a good day. Thank you so much. Bye. You do bye. the same. Right, Thank bye. you. Bye-bye. Listen, um, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. Yeah. And I would say that of all the races where I think it would be vital to have a breakthrough, it would be in a race like his. Yeah. Uh, Ashley Moody is a space. It's a certain level of terrible. That's, you know, there's again, there's over um, there. You know, people like to overstate like just how bad things are with certain representatives. But Ashley Moody is uh, notoriously a, um, a, you know, a, a, a party hack for, you know, Trump and DeSantis. And, you know, the attorney general is really supposed to be somebody who walks to the beat of their own drum. And she clearly does not. And okay, so I want to address Dirtbag Leftist says it amazes me that 15 weeks isn't enough time to decide to have an abortion when the earliest premature birth was at 12 weeks. I, first of all, that's not true. I don't know where you get that information on. I've never heard of a premature birth at 12 weeks. Somebody had somebody had somebody was successfully able to birth a child that was less than three months old. Well, OK. No, and not only that, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm going to make it so easy for you, dirtbag left. This is the easiest thing you can do. Don't think about it. If you don't have a uterus, 
then you don't even need to concern yourself with whether 15 weeks is enough time or not because you don't have a uterus. So it's not your concern. That would be my best suggestion. First of all, I personally have known people that didn't know they were pregnant for a really long time because they didn't stop getting their period. Also, it's just none of anybody's business. I don't care how many somebody is. I don't care if somebody, I don't care. First of all, you can't get an amnio until after 16 weeks. So for people who don't want to bring a child that has serious chromosomal abnormalities or whatever, you do not have that option at 15 weeks to make that decision. I sh- and I don't even like having to explain this to people. It's just- and the other thing, and the other thing that I think is so strange that people are still not really understanding is that the biggest reason why, I mean, again, you have Christian fundamentalists, but they don't make up every nook and cranny of this country. You have, I mean, like I said, my best friend's mother growing up, she is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs when it comes to abortion. Uh, she hands out the palm cards with the dead fetus. Like, that's what she does. Um, she's a, as devout Catholic as anybody I've ever known. I mean, goes to church, uh, you know, multiple times a week and every Sunday and every high holy day and all of that. Uh and again, well, and I want to say James Elgin Gill was born in Ottawa, Ontario on May 20th, 1987, around 128 days early or at 21 weeks gestation. He set a record. So 21 weeks is the earliest premature person that has lived. And uh, I would like to point out that that's as early as you can even have an amnio. What people still do not understand, and the biggest reason why they really don't want people to have abortions is simple. If you are in a situation, and more often than not, do you know who gets abortions, ladies and gentlemen? People who simply are in a circumstance in life that does not afford them the opportunity to properly raise a child. And so the goal here is to keep people in perpetual poverty, because what happens when you're perpetual poverty is you make people who are rich even richer and you make people who are dependent on the government more inclined to stay exactly where they are. So this is why. Everyone who thinks that this is just a Republican issue. No, this is both sides issue because both sides benefit from this issue. They they there is there is still this sort of like lost notion of, well, why is it that, you know, protect life and protect this? If you really wanted to protect life, you would have universal child care, universal health care and a living wage. But we don't have those things. And of course, we don't have them because, again, it isn't about protecting life. It's about protecting the economic structure of our country. These are pro-life people. They're forced birth people. There is a very big difference because the same people that want to ban my right to control my uterus don't think I'm entitled to health care or said baby is entitled to Janet, you have every right to believe that. No one is disputing your right to believe that. It is not your job or your right to tell anyone else to believe what you believe. And if you think that that's what that is, then you are okay with totalitarian uh, a system of living. I don't think that's what she was saying. I don't think that's what she was saying. Again, uh, if people, but I'm saying that if people want to believe that we have spirits and that we go on after we die, that's fine. I, I think that it's possible. I don't know for sure. But what I don't believe is this idea that everyone has to adhere to those same principles that this idea that we all have to agree with the same set of beliefs. If you believe that you have a right and yeah, agreed, 
everybody has the right to health care. It should have it. General and Clark. Nobody General else Smith. should have the right to tell anybody else what they can or cannot do with their person. Yeah. And again, it would be one thing if we were in a situation where we actually had, you know, abortion laws that were really constructed to to be where, yeah, there are extenuating circumstances, but they don't want any of that. That is the problem. We, we do not have, you know, again, if you think that it's not OK to protect a woman's right to choose if she's raped, molested, uh birth defects, severe birth defects. I mean, see, I don't think it even matters. I'm so tired of having to justify and sort of like placate this. I don't care if a woman is the whore of the universe and goes around and screws everybody in sight and gets pregnant. And she just wants to have an abortion just because she wants to. That's her business. That's her problem. And I am so tired of having to like, well, what about rape and incest? We're negotiating my body parts. It's absurd that we're having this discussion. I know people don't want to. I know people don't want to hear this. I know people don't want to hear this. But Kelly's right, and we do have, we do have a, you know, again, um, there's only so many resources to go around, and people want to act like we have this endless supply, uh, you know, for us to, you know, just continue to populate the planet, and we don't. Uh, Wesley, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, again. Uh, the places where it's the hardest um, in order to get an abortion is usually in the plighted, underserved places of the country, and they predominantly are from people of color. So again, I don't. I knew I, what I, you meant, Janet. I he didn't understand what you meant. I knew what you meant. My apologies, Janet. I I'm, again, I. But we have people who come on here and have very uh, very definitive opinions about this issue. But again. Uh, we're at this point now where everyone is trying to convince themselves that, oh, you know, they took abortion away and now a woman can't choose anymore. Woe is me. I'll go out there and fight for, vote for Democrats because I'm telling you guys, the biggest reason that we lost a woman's right to choose in some capacity is because of the financial windfall that it presents for politicians and not just from an electoral perspective, but the fact that people who have children who are forced to have them and are often having them because they can't or, or be forced to have them in other circumstances that they wouldn't have it because they cannot afford it. Whatever the circumstances are, if you force somebody to have a child that isn't prepared to be a parent or can't afford it, whatever the circumstances are, the cycle of poverty continues. The welfare state grows and the fat cats get richer. This is always about economics. Even something like a woman's right to choose, everything is interconnected to economics. Don't ever think for a second that this is just about religious crazies who don't want you to be able to choose. Yeah, there are religious crazies in this country, and I tell them to kick rocks. I don't give a flying F what they think or what they believe, because you know what I believe in? I believe in the Constitution of the United States, which says the separation of church and state. It says it in writing, the separation of church and state. Do not infringe upon my beliefs and I will not infringe upon yours. That's it. That is the First Amendment in a nutshell. You have the right to say what you want to say as long as you are not harming anybody. I have the right to say that a woman can choose to do what she wants with her own body. And you can't stop me. 
Yeah, I'm tired of this discussion about what I can and cannot do. And Dirtbag, there are two bodies involved, but only one of them is even remotely your business, the person who's alive and living in this world. It is not even our business whether or not someone is pregnant. We shouldn't even know that. Why is it our business to even know that there is another body involved? Why is what's going on inside any woman's body anybody else's business? You shouldn't even know that there's another person in there. Maybe she just swallowed a basketball. Maybe it's none of your business. When you have that much financial potential by not codifying Roe, even if you campaign saying that you will, this idea that they're going to codify Roe if they get two more senators elected let me assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that nothing is going to get codified. Why? Because the Democrats will lose one of the two branches of legislative government in the midterms. And once that happens, you will have gridlock government and the whole cycle continues. As if it's been so flowing with us having a majority. Yeah. We don't get anything anyway. If this administration has proven nothing, it's proven that it truly does not matter because all they would always argue is, oh, but the Supreme Court, oh, but the Supreme Court. Well, Obama didn't take it seriously. And all the people that rubber stamped all of Trump's lower level judges didn't take it seriously. So now that's the answer. No, 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 no. That's not how this is going to work. Yep, exactly. It is the same story for decades. And Dirtbag, here's the bottom line. Uh, You can believe what you want to believe. And here's the thing. You would at least have somewhat of an argument that could be made and an argument, not something that I would agree with, but an argument that can be made. Well, I mean, again, it depends. But if your argument is late term abortion, anything that is within the third trimester where the fetus can survive outside the womb, that's fine. But do not give me this. Well, you're harming another body. A fetus cannot survive outside the womb only up until a certain point. And so suggesting that a woman must be forced to birth a child. Do you not understand what that means? They don't care because we're women. If men got pregnant, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. And do not underestimate the importance of the fact that the two most powerful people in the Democratic Party are both devout Catholics. If you think that doesn't matter when it comes to Biden and Pelosi, I don't know what you're looking at. Because it does matter. And they have always had a very tepid response regarding abortion. Hell, you've got Biden on record saying, I don't believe in a woman's right to choose. I mean, everyone thinks that these guys just evolve over time. It's it's not true. They may change their messaging. But Joe has been very adamant about the idea that, that a woman doesn't have full body autonomy. That's why he's always been against the Hyde Amendment. I agree with you, Wesley, and I am very familiar with that. If you haven't read a book called Medical Apartheid, I highly recommend it um, by Margaret Washington, right? Harriet Washington, Harriet Washington, Um, Medical Apartheid. And I do agree. And there is definitely something to be said about the founding of Planned Parenthood and eugenics. And I I do not disagree with any of that. I do not disagree with any of that. And and we'll leave on this note, guys. Remember, no one, no one is fighting harder against universal health care than Planned Parenthood. <clears throat> and that's it. They don't want it. Why would what they? What do we have coming up? Uh, we have uh, Mo, who is coming on. We have a mo- It'll be a Monday afternoon show uh, as well next week. Uh, we will have uh, Mo. I can't f- remember pronouncing her last you, name. Every time you call her Mo, I'm thinking of Mo, my Mo. And then when Maureen? you say- 
Yes, her name is Maureen. Okay, so Maureen. Well, in the email, it says Mo. So that's why I'm going based on that. Uh, so she'll be coming on to talk about the uh, the uh, baby formula crisis that we're still facing. Amazing. Uh, and then, of course, you have uh, Sean Hartman, who is going to be coming on, that Jen has been uh, wanting to have on. Um, I, do- like any of us, platforming a non-corporate Republican. And yeah, I think that that's important. We also, uh, we do need to schedule Mo to come on because she did start a podcast. So we want to give ben her a shout. watching today. Well, please message her and ask her if she's available on Wednesday. Wednesday evening to get her on. And we will ultimately, uh, that is true, Mario. Yeah, so people who are still fooled by Planned Parenthood, stop being fooled. It's really sad. So with that said, we hope you guys enjoyed our afternoon fiesta. Uh, again, not quite afternoon delight, but nonetheless. Well, again, I know not everybody's going to agree with General Clark. I didn't agree with everything that he said, but I agreed with quite a bit of what he said. And I think that that's important. And even though, you know, we've got friends in the chat who don't agree with everything that he had to say, I hope that you will take some of what he said to heart. It isn't that, see, that doesn't, I don't, what bothered me about some of the stuff in the chat is it was more just who he is, just calling him out based on who his job is and what he did. And I understand people that are mistrusting of that, but I think to just dismiss an entire initiative or an entire project based on something like that is, is really just ignorant. Uh, a lot of people who, um, rightfully so, are dead set against war, as am I, um, because let's face it, almost every war is fought over resources. That was not a topic we had the time to get into with the general. But, you know, again, that's why he's, you know, he sees it from a very, uh, you know, again, this is a this is a gentleman who served our country for many decades during the Cold War. So it's not like. He was using me in my platform. (laughs) Well, yes. General, if General Clark thinks that using our platform is is going to help him, then I guess we're doing something right. I mean, we had exactly the top of the social hierarchy that somebody would be using. People watching at any one time, you know, people will see this. We're not that popular, but we're mighty, and we do what we can. And I think the conversation was necessary. Uh, it's just a conversation. I, I, I feel like not everything is, a, I, I'm just, it's so ridiculous. Like not everything is, Oh, he's using you. Or, oh, he's this, or, Oh, he's that, or, Oh, they're that. like people, people, it's just a conversation. Good grief. Well, if you like our content and I'm sure you do, cause you guys are here, please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change for as little as $5 a month. You could become a patron of our channel. And you can continue to see this wonderful content. Campaigning season is obviously upon us. And we have some really good local non-corporate candidates that are running for office that we will be supporting. And you could obviously become a $10 patron, which would be even more wonderful. That adds to a lot of the efforts that we do locally, like homeless care packages, community gardens. I've been giving out so much stuff here. Yeah, there's a lot of people in need. And that's where our role comes in. You never have to question where the money's going on our channel. Because it ain't going into our pockets. It's going back out into society. So if you guys are so inclined and have not set up as of yet, please do go to patreon.com forward slash forward slash generational change. $5 a month, $10 a month, or 
$25 a month gets you one of these bad boys. We're always welcome to suggestions. We certainly appreciate any and all support that you guys are willing to provide. And obviously, the chat is always very lively. We certainly hope that you guys enjoyed it. And of course, it is not It is not going to normally be. Oh, there is no Lulu cat, Mario. That's just the graphic. I just put a little hat on her that says Asheville. That isn't a real, there is no real merch for that. I think he just really is impressed with your graphic capabilities. So I think he just likes Lulu. Mario, we all like Lulu, but contribute to the show if you can. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Obviously, it's not always going to be in the afternoon. We will have another afternoon show on Monday, but we should be back to our regular schedule programming at 8 o'clock on Wednesday of next week. But in the meantime, we hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.